We started this podcast as a simple commitment between Casper and me. Once a week, we would sit in a room and treat Harry Potter as sacred, even if no one showed up. Now, we have 70,000 listeners we never could have imagined. We also now have Maggie, who makes sure that all of our local groups feel supported. We have Megan, who makes sure that we behave with integrity in the world. We have Chelsea, who produces the women of Harry Potter. And we have Ariana, who makes sure that every episode, every live show, everything we put out into the world is done to the highest possible standard. We make sure that we pay all of them a living wage. We are trying to be the change we want to see in the world. We are trying to only use fair trade merchandise products to give health care to all of our employees and pay time off. We are trying to save in order to plant a tree for every flight that we take. And we cannot be the company that every company should be without your support. With 70,000 listeners and 1,300 supporters on Patreon, that means that 2% of you support us on Patreon, and we are so grateful for your support. But we want to make it 3% of our listeners who support us on Patreon, which would mean 2,100 supporters. For $1 a month, you get an extra few minutes of bloopers. That's $1 a month for the feeling of being in the top 3% of our listeners. That level of success would even make Hermione happy. So join us. Be part of the top 3%. Join Casper and me in that room that gets more and more filled the more of you show up. We are so grateful that you are part of this community. I'd have sat in that room with Casper alone gladly, but I love having you here. Hermione made no mention of Harry giving Defense Against the Dark Arts lessons for two whole weeks after her original suggestion. Harry's detentions with Umbridge were finally over. He doubted whether the words now etched on the back of his hand would ever fade entirely. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Caspar Tekhile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Vanessa, our theme this week is respite. What story do you have for us? So I'm going to tell a slightly different version of a story that I have told once before, which is about the time that I went to Peru with my friend Emmy, who listens every week to this podcast. Hi, Emmy. Emmy and I decided that we were going to go to Machu Picchu, but we decided that we were going to do this in this like grand way. And as our listeners know, I love to walk. Emmy loves to bike. And so because I love Emmy, I let her pick this like adventure travel situation in which we mountain biked and then walked. So on day one of this, like, travel to Machu Picchu situation, we were mountain biking in the mountains outside of Cusco, which are, like, pretty significant mountains. These are not, like, hills. These are mountains. And I hated it. I mean, like, I hated it. I hated it so much that I was, like, way in front of everybody, not because I was in such better shape, but because I was like, views are for nerds. I am going to get to the next town as quickly as possible so that this is over. And what ended up happening is that my front tire blew, and this is the part of the story that I've told before where I flipped my bike and, like, got a minor concussion, and it was, like, a pretty bad accident. But 
I remember once it was clear that I was okay, how relieved I was that I couldn't get back on the bike. (laughs) I was like, oh, no, I can't do it anymore. My bike is damaged. Now, would I do this again for the break that I got? No, I would not flip my bike, give myself a concussion and like bust my face up for this. Nor was it like a conscious choice to do it. But the respite that I got from the hours of more biking that I would have had to do was such a gift to me in that moment. And so I'm really interested in the contextualization of when something is a respite and when it isn't, when it's actually, right, like violent or a punishment. Yeah, this doesn't happen in this chapter, but I think of like the twins and their new product line of like skiving snack boxes. Like no one wants to throw up on cue, but if it gets you out of Professor Binz's homework, I'm down. Right, exactly. Nobody wants to like have their front tire blow. Unless you're hanging out with Emmy, in which case. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't the hanging out with Emmy. It was that she picked this bike company. I also love to city bike. I just don't like to mountain bike. That's something we can agree on. Yeah. I'll tell you something else we can agree on. That these transition jokes are amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It's time for the 30-second recap. Which is a respite from the rest of the episode. That's true. (laughs) I feel like the 30-second recaps are like our Shakespearean gravedigger moments. I think that's right. Yeah, and you only really need one every play. Like in the middle of Macbeth when they do the electric slide. (laughs) So, Casper, it is your turn to do a 30-second recap. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. On your mark. Get set. Go. So, um, uh, she hasn't brought it up for a while, but, like, let's talk again about Defense Against the Dark Arts. It's not yet called the DA, but it's happening. So, they're like, okay, well, who's coming? And she's like, well, I invited some people. And Hermione's like, okay, let's go to Hogsmeade. We'll do it there. It's going to be great. No, not the three broomsticks, because a lot of people there, so we'll go to Hogshead. But, like, um, they enter, and it's, like, freaky, and who is this barman? And then there's someone dressed up as a witch, and then, like, Zachary. Smith is annoying and but they plan it and then she makes them all sign their names and everyone's like oh my god now we're part of a secret society and then they return all right Vanessa your turn okay three two one here we go so it turns out that Ginny does not have a crush on Harry anymore Ginny is now with this guy Michael and that's how so many people get recruited (gasps) Ron gets really upset that Ginny has a boyfriend and that he didn't even know about it and he doesn't even know that he has feelings for Hermione though so he's not really like up on things Cho tries to stay behind in order to flirty flirt with Harry a little bit more but her friend totally gets in the way terrible wing person and is like tapping her foot and so Cho goes away and then at the very end of the chapter Hermione tells Harry that Cho has a crush on her and Hogsmeade has just never looked more beautiful ugh Again, the friends getting in the way. I know. So many friends. Don't have friends, people. (laughs) It gets in the way of your love life. (laughs) Ditch your friends. Date. Because high school boyfriends are forever, (laughs) but friends come and go. (laughs) So, Vanessa, where did you see this theme of respite or an American respite in the chapter? (laughs) So... The Hogshead, right? Like the title of the chapter. Hogsmeade weekends are supposed to be respites, right? All weekends, to some extent, are like Sabbaths. But Hogsmeade is like a Sabbath of Sabbaths Mm. (laughs) in that you're not just getting a break from your daily schedule, but you're also getting a separation of place. Mm. And so you're not going to like run into Professor Snape and be reminded of the homework that you have to do because you're like in Honeydukes. And instead of being a respite on this weekend, 
not only does Harry have to like step into this leadership role, but in fact, he's put in a situation in which he's having to defend his trauma once again. And so my heart just breaks for him. That feeling when you like have to work for some reason, like 17 days in a row, right? It's like, I just need a break. This poor kid. Basically, I think that this book should be retitled Harry Potter, that poor kid, just give him a break. (laughs) But I do think this is a break. I do think he gets a piece of respite here because he has agency. There's something exciting happening, right? Feels good to do something to resist umbrage, we hear at one point in the text. And I think, in fact, so often we think about, especially leaving the place that we're in is going to like solve the issues that we're struggling with in our everyday life, right? Like that we go on vacation because everything's going to be different there. And like John Kabat-Zinn says, like, everywhere you go, there you are. (laughs) Which I still make that mistake every time. I'm like, I'm going to be so different in 2019. Or like, if I move, I'm going to be so different. (laughs) And I'm telling myself that story actually like right now about moving house. So I feel like what changes is the power dynamic that Harry is not just suffering and like making it through Umbridge's detention and blah, blah, blah. But like, even if it's painful, like he is getting to do something. Is that respite though? I guess it depends on how we define it. If we define it as like an interruption of like a monotonous form of suffering, then yes, I think you're right. But if we think of it as like restful or an opportunity to heal from that suffering, then I don't think he's healing here. I think he's strengthening other muscles or whatever metaphor we want to use. But I I don't quite see this as healing for him in the same way that that moment we talked about last week is with Hermione finally saying Voldemort and him finally being able to be honest, right? He doesn't feel comfortable telling the, his whole story here. He He's performing still. Oh, 100%. I mean, when we look at the meaning of respite, it's often about a short period of relief from something unpleasant. It's not like rest or relaxation, which is a much more kind of like long-term experience. Respite or respite feels like it is temporary by nature, And so whatever it is, whether it's about being in a different place or feeling safer because he's away from the clutches of umbrage, he still has to come back. Right. The difference that I see between something like respite and healing is that respite is that like if you're in the middle of running a marathon, you stop for a minute, you stretch your quads, you have some water, right? But the distance isn't getting any shorter. You're just going to have to start running again. Mm. And you wouldn't necessarily be able to finish the race if you didn't stop for those couple of minutes. So it sort of helps you toward your goal, but not materially. Yeah, I like that. And so instead of taking a step forward, you might be taking a step to the side and then like returning to the fray of whatever busyness is going on. Yeah. So I just like, I still don't know, like, is the hogshead opportunity one for respite or for something else? Well, the thing that interests me is that maybe only when we take that sidestep or we have a moment of respite or we go off site to Hogsmeade, like something new can happen. And I think that's maybe what's most interesting about even if during the marathon, right, you're just taking a deep breath, you're stretching your quads, like a new capacity or a new something comes into you that then helps you go the distance. And if you didn't take a breath, right, there wasn't that moment of respite, then like you actually wouldn't make it. Yeah. Well, and what happens in a race is that if you step off to the side, you start running with new people. And like Harry is learning names of new people from, right? So like, I think it gives us the opportunity to change. Mm. I think it's really hard to change if you're just on a path. I love that. 
the more you walk on a certain path, the more well-trodden it becomes and you just stop thinking about things. And so I think taking a respite gives you an opportunity to come back different. Right. It's like the joy of going on vacation is in part like you eat a different thing for breakfast every morning and then you come back and you're like, why do I have oatmeal every morning? I'm going to start having yogurt. It creates an opportunity for change that like if you're just making your grocery list every week, you're just going to put oatmeal on the list every week. A hundred percent. So this is one of the reasons why I love doing my tech Sabbath, which I know you started doing as well. Listeners know that like I turn off my phone and my laptop on Friday night and try and have 24 hours without using screens or tech. What I love about it is that it gives me exactly that kind of moment of respite where I suddenly it's not like I have new ideas, but like ideas that have been there for a while get to kind of bubble up. And so I'll journal often on a Saturday in a way that I don't during the rest of the week. And I'll be like, oh, that would be a cool project. Or, oh, I should do that event. Or like, this would be interesting to read or learn about. It kind of gives you space for all this cool stuff that might be bubbling up, but is a bit trapped through the everyday, whether it's your grocery list or like a new career that you want to plan. Like it just gives that little bit of space for it to emerge. Yeah, it's why I used to listen to podcasts even while showering, and I don't anymore because just having that 15 minutes of quiet, something always occurs to me in that time of quiet. And what's amazing is that we really are the first generation where it's that intense. Like you might have had the radio on 20, 50 years ago, but like just the intensity of of sound that's through our ears like every moment of the day. I find myself feeling like a little weird when I don't have something playing. It it feels like a waste of time if I'm not listening. Right. I'm like, I should be getting something done. I feel guilty. It's like, well, I have so many great podcasts to listen to. I have so many great audiobooks to listen to. There's so much music that I enjoy listening to that, like, why would I waste times with my own thoughts? It becomes this, like, value judgment where respite feels indulgent when really we have to start seeing it is necessary. And we see that throughout these chapters that we're in right now, because the boys are struggling with the amount of work that they've got. There's Quidditch practice for Ron, right? Harry's had these awful detentions with Umbridge. And you can see them, that internal narrative of like, oh, but we've got to do Snape's essay. Oh, we've got to do this thing for Bins. And like, they don't do it all because it's basically impossible. And I think we're just not meant to work this hard. Like, that's not what life is about. Well, and I think we see it also with Sirius, right? Mm. Sirius is not given respite from another form of imprisonment in Grimwald Place. And I understand why Dumbledore says that he has to stay inside. But I think that the fact that he isn't given any break from it is why he ends up acting recklessly. And with great cost. And I'm not saying that there is like an easy way that Dumbledore could solve this. Couldn't someone in the Order's job be to, like, quote-unquote, walk the dog every day? Oh, there are a hundred ways that you could do that. Like, come on, Dumbledore. And I know this is a small problem. Dumbledore's fighting fascism around the world. But still. But it's not a small problem. We do have to build in tech Sabbaths, right? We have to build in respite as part of the plan. And, I mean, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago where— Tonk says, like, I just can't be on duty anymore. And I understand there are a limited number of people in the order. But if you are not allowing people to take breaks, they're going to burn out. And we just see that with Sirius. And so he acts recklessly. And there are dire consequences. So let me say something that's going to surprise you. This is why Hermione's a genius. 
No. <laughs> because, I mean, what she's doing is like, listen, I am interrupting the defense against the dark arts classes. Harry is like standing up to Umbridge. This is not a sustainable solution. We need to expand the number of people who are going to be part of this. The hard thing can be when all the responsibility is on your shoulders to be like, I literally cannot stop. And when we're in those situations, I, I don't know, it, as hard as it is, what we should be looking to do is to try and spread the responsibility, right? Like, how do you bring other people in to carry the load with you? Because otherwise, you know, there's that classic proverb of like, if you want to go fast, you can go alone. But if you want to go far, you have to go together. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's electric toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who have recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, and I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning non-toxic perfumes and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own floor sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. We mentioned briefly the barman at the Hogshead. This is an exciting moment because we meet Aberforth, Dumbledore's brother, of course, and the text tells us that Harry had the impression even the barman was listening. And of course he is. And so 
as we have Dumbledore's absence throughout this book, here we have the presence of his brother. I, I just found it interesting to think about like missing brothers, right? We're having this whole conversation about Percy and the ministry. We learn later that Aberforth has this separation from Dumbledore. And so I just love that echo of presence while we're while we're thinking of absence. Yeah, I, I don't know what to make of that, but it, it was fun to notice. Well, it was the first time that it occurred to me that for two brothers who don't speak, they sure do live close to one another. That's <laughs> so true. Right? Like, Aberforth must hear Dumbledore's name all the time. Yeah. I mean, he's, like, in the shadow of Hogwarts. And, yeah, talk about something that he, like, doesn't get a respite from. But he is choosing to set up shop there, quite literally. So, Vanessa, where else do you see this theme of respite? So you spoke about this a little bit, that you never get a break from yourself. (laughs) It's so true. And I saw this really acutely at the beginning of them entering the hogshead. Mm. Two things happen. One is that Harry's lightning scar gets recognized by the proprietor. Right. And the other is that Ron gets really excited that they'll probably serve to underage people here. (laughs) It's such a Ron moment. I'm like, good for you, Ron. (laughs) And he's like, I've always wanted to try fire whiskey. But even though he's in a different place, Hermione reminds him, like, you're a prefect. You can't behave like that. Mm. And so it's even when you're not in the place where you wear that hat, like, those identities follow you. He doesn't stop being a prefect just because he's not at Hogwarts. Well, and what's interesting about the two things you're drawing attention to is that one is embodied, right? Like, it's physically on his face. And the other one is an identity that he can wear or not wear, depending who he's with, right? Because if he was with his, maybe with his brothers, like, Fred and George would be, like, goading him into doing it if they were in a different pub somewhere without Hermione. And so there are elements of ourselves that we can forget, right? Like, that we can leave behind, where it's contextual on the people or the institutions that we're engaging with. And there's other things that just follow us around forever. And we've talked a lot about, you know, the tattoos, for example, from the Nazi death camps. Like, that is physically on someone's body and can never leave. But here's the thing. So, like, my grandparents all handled their tattoos very differently. And I sort of feel that way with Harry. Like, Harry could take up wearing a baseball cap. Or grow his hair. Well, his hair doesn't behave. It's always sticking up. But, like... Buy some concealer. Men's makeup is getting very popular I right just, now. like, there are ways for him to, like, pull attention from his scar. He can't get rid of the scar, but he doesn't have to always be having these moments. Well, and there is this real intense thing that he is getting a new scar on his hand. And, and the chapter tells us at this point he's not sure if it'll ever go away. So that scarring is just growing and growing in a way that is very noticeable, right? The back of your hand is a place that's super visible. Right. There's like less and less of an opportunity for respite from his body. He does seem to have a very different relationship with each of these scars, right? Mm. The lightning bolt scar is this identifier. It's he's the boy who lived. It's the thing that makes him noticeable as famous for something that he had no control over. Right. He had no agency in it. It happened to him before he was conscious of who he was. And like he lost his parents, right? Mm. Like All of these negative things are associated with it. And as a kid who's, like, trying to blend in, it's the thing that always makes him, like, obviously him. Whereas he has a seemingly different relationship forming with this new scar on his hand. In the previous chapter, you know, when he and Cho are in the Owlery, he's deciding whether or not to, like, show it off to her, Mm. right? We don't find out why, like, what that's motivated by. If it's just motivated by, like, sheer awkwardness of, like... 
I already talked to you about the weather. The only other thing new in my life is the scar. So let's talk about that. <laughs> but he would never want to talk to Cho about his lightning scar. Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah. And of course, I mean, he is suffering from abuse in this moment. But there is something interesting in how he relates to it, there's some very complicated element that he's earning something here, which I'm hesitating to say just because the implications are worrying. But I feel like he can take pride in this scar from Umbridge because he's standing up to her in a way that he never feels like he deserves what comes with the scar on his forehead. He's also enduring the torture without complaining about it. Right. He's endured this pain sort of manfully. I was going to go to masculinity because I think actually that's the differentiator in a way like that he is he is withstanding hardship silently and stoically mm-hmm. while the other one like he was, he was literally a baby. a baby right well and just scars are interesting because the difference between like a scar and a wound right is that you don't get respite from it it mm. follows you for the rest of your life that's what makes a scar a scar what if we saw the second scar umbridge's scar as a wound rather than a scar because we don't know if that does stay with him throughout the rest of the books Let's keep our eyes open for that. So it's time for our spiritual practice, Vanessa, and we are moving on to Chavruta. Woo! Woo! So in some ways... Our whole podcast project is a Chavruta project because Chavruta is the art of discussing and debating and and talking about a text. And I was recently at this awesome gathering of Jewish education professionals in San Diego. And one of them drew me this beautiful diagram, which helped me understand what we do every week, which is a triangle. And each of the points is you me and the text. And the conversation that we're having and the true Chavruta conversation and wisdom lives in the middle of that triangle. So what we're going to do is do that a little bit more intentionally. I'm going to ask you a question and we're going to have a conversation between you, me, and the text and see where we can find the truth. Perfect. So my question is this. We see a real brief moment of real conflict between Hermione and Luna. And I'll read you the moment that I'm thinking about. Luna says, After all, Cornelius Fudge has got his own private army. What? said Harry, completely thrown by this unexpected piece of information. Yes, he's got an army of heliopaths, said Luna solemnly. No, he hasn't, snapped Hermione. Yes, he has, said Luna. What are heliopaths? (laughs) asked Neville, looking blank. They're spirits of fire, said Luna, her perturbant eyes widening, so that she looked madder than ever. Great tall flaming creatures that gallop across the ground, burning everything in front of. They don't exist, Neville, said Hermione tartly. So my friend Amy pointed this out to me as an example, really, of a conversation often between a kind of staunch atheist and a staunch believing religious person, that there are completely two separate worldviews that are clashing here. Hermione saying, this is ridiculous, like these heliopath creatures do not, not exist. And Luna saying, like, no, absolutely they do. This is real. So my question to you is this. In a moment where Hermione's trying to build unity and community and support Harry, why is she coming down so hard on Luna? She's not even letting Luna finish her sentence. Like, she's cutting her off. She's saying you're stupid. You're wrong. Like, shut up. Why is she doing this? What's at stake? Well, in our rules of Havruta, now you have to offer an answer to that question. So, my best guess is that it's a distraction 
to what Hermione's trying to do. She knows that if Luna, like, starts talking about the magical world of pixie horns, that everyone might become more interested in, like, those creatures or, like, a plot from Cornelius Fudge. Like, I feel like she's frustrated that we're getting off track and she wants to get back to the conversation. I think it also distracts from what, like, the real enemy is, right? It's it's, Hermione doesn't want to be affiliated with that nonsense, I think what's at stake for Hermione is what was at stake when a couple of years ago that big Rolling Stone article came out that it turned out not to be true about a young woman who was gang raped. Yes. And all feminists who want to be saying, like, we should always believe women when they report a rape are like, no, like, do not distract this super important conversation about how we should believe women with this false story. And Hermione is saying, like, believe Harry, Voldemort is back. And then Luna saying, and believe me, that heliopaths are real. And it's like, no, like, something real is at stake here, and we are going to get looped into your personal mythology. And, like, that is not what this conversation can be about right now. But I think that it's more than that for Hermione. Mm. I think that we know that Hermione doesn't like things that there isn't real evidence for. Like, I have become really interested in the fact that, like, all of Trelawney's predictions are true in this series, and Hermione does not go to divination anymore, right? If something cannot be proven to Hermione, she has, like, a violent rejection of it. And so it's interesting because to some extent what Luna is saying is true. Fudge does have his own army. He has the ministry at his disposal. He has police officers. He has oars, right? Like, he does actually have his own army. Whether or not heliopaths are real is beside the point. Fudge does have access to his own army. This is super interesting. I think you're right in pointing out to a place where Hermione is very uncomfortable, right? She wants to be able to measure. She wants to be able to prove using a kind of very traditional set of mathematical reasoning and everything else because I think she's afraid of things she can't control. When, of course, magic by its inherent nature is something that's always beyond, at least I think, our control. And we do not know whether heliopaths are real or not. And I think in some ways there's a real character flaw here a little bit, or at least an immaturity for Hermione about how to engage with people who see the world differently to her. I mean, Hermione at this age was me at this age. Like, I thought people who believed in God were stupid. I thought... People who were religious were weak. They needed a crutch to make it through. They couldn't face the stark reality. That Opiate the w- of the masses. Yes, and that this was just a story that was made up to like make people believe in institutions that controlled them. Now, all of that, to some extent, could still be true. But it's for me, what hurts is the way that Hermione engages Luna. Because in some ways, like we have seen Luna's wisdom in offering Harry, especially with the Thestrals, something that Hermione cannot offer. And I think Hermione is closing herself to possibilities of what life might offer before really engaging and and learning more about what they are. You know, my experience in divinity school was like, oh, the God that I thought was not real, yeah, totally, is not real. But the God that other people, like, are really engaged with, oh, my God, I'd never thought about something like that in that way. Like, my mind was open. I still have no idea where I land in that massive morass of joy and wonder, but I can't shut down someone talking halfway through a sentence in the way that Hermione does anymore. And I I think that's what frustrates me in this moment. Right. She could say... Whether or not heliopaths are real is not important to this conversation. (laughs) What matters is 
that Voldemort is back, and we know that to be true. And that Fudge can mobilize a powerful army, as you said, behind things that we're against. Right. And I also think that Hermione is doing something that, especially nowadays, we can recognize as so important. Opinions are valid, but fake news is not, right? Like, lies are not. And Luna is in this in-between space where she's offering an opinion and a theory and stating it as fact. And so by Hermione trying to suss that out, even though she does it in this ungenerous way, it is an important thing that she is trying to excavate. So the thing that suddenly strikes me is that one of the reasons why Hermione is so touchy, maybe, about this, is the whole Rita Skeeter storyline from book four. Say more. Well, fake news, Mm. right? Like, news that travels that's incorrect, especially because she knows that Luna's father is an editor of a magazine. She knows how damaging news that is invented can be. Like, she has seen what's happened, and she took her own revenge. And so I can imagine that there's something very personal about this. Like, lies that travel, especially in print, have consequences. And Hermione has seen that. And so, you know, so so many people, at least in my experience, where religion is really something that's triggering and painful, it's because it has hurt them. And so there's a good reason why people like screw you and your God, because it's done damage to me and the people I love. And so I'm just wondering if there's maybe an echo of that in this conversation. Right. And she's watching Harry deal with like this actual trauma of this actual thing that happened that is still being questioned. And she's like, let's not muddy the waters here. Like Voldemort is back. Cedric died. Harry saw it happen. And I'm tired of getting yelled at. (laughs) Yeah. Don't bring your flamethrower friends into this. Right. I mean, for Luna, she says there are plenty of eyewitness accounts. Just because you're so narrow-minded, you need to have everything shoved under your nose. Like, Luna gives as good as she gets. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Don't worry about Luna. The real champion in this whole scene is Ginny, (laughs) who ends the conversation by going, ahem, ahem, and making everyone think Umbridge has shown up, which just made me so happy. That's what I'm blessing Ginny for. (laughs) Our voicemail this week is from Malloy Moore. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. My name is Malloy, and I want to start by thanking you for all the effort you put into this podcast. Um, I want to provide a possible answer for why Harry is so frustrated at Ron and Hermione's inability to engage with his anger. So this moment comes from the first chapter of book five. Uh, It says, It gave Harry enormous satisfaction to know how furious he was making Dudley. He felt as though he was siphoning off his own frustration into his cousin, the only outlet he had. And I wanted to put this in perspective of, in the next few chapters, when Harry sees Ron and Hermione, he reacts angrily towards them and expects them to get angry back. And I think that it really is with love and kindness that Ron and Hermione respond to Harry's anger in calm, supportive ways. Um, But I want to take a moment to recognize that Harry has not just suffered a kind of PTSD from Cedric's death at the end of the fourth book, but that he still has the lasting uh, implications of growing up in a household that treats him not always with kindness. I want to give a blessing to Harry in figuring out complicated trauma and when old ways of coping in a different situation might not work for the present situation. 
I've wanted to call in so many times, but I thought that it was important to do it now to share the perspective of the frustration that comes when you expect someone to behave in a in a way that is maladaptive and they don't. Malloy, I think you're right that we haven't been thinking about the Dursleys and the way that it impacts Harry during this year. And I think that we do really see his aloneness, right? He doesn't have a parent or any really sense of, like, someone who unconditionally loves him, who he can be brainstorming with and thinking this through and railing against and then apologizing, right? We we talk a lot about the ways that Sirius is not an ideal godfather, but I think that obviously they're, like, the Dursleys are also not ideal foster parents. And so... Dumbledore is missing. Like, there's just such an absence of adults in his life. McGonagall is telling him to listen to Umbridge. Harry really doesn't have an adult in his back pocket here. And I can't imagine being 15 and feeling that way. I love that you say, not ideal, foster parents. (laughs) (laughs) They're not. They're really not. I die on that hill. They're not ideal. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. And we haven't really talked much about some of the characters that we meet who join the trio in The Hogshead, but I loved meeting Anthony Goldstein. Hermione's midway through a point, and he just says from the back of the room, here, here, <laughs> which both says that he's super posh, but also reminded me of one of my favorite YouTube videos called How to Start a Movement, which tracks how one guy on this field, like on this hill, starts dancing like weirdly and wildly. And then suddenly there's a second person who joins them. And the movement is started when the second person joins the first, because no longer is this a weird loner in a field. Now there's two. And very quickly, there's a third and a fourth. And then these crowds descend. And suddenly there's a rave happening in a meadow. And yes, you need one person who's like brave enough to go first. But that doesn't matter, really, until a second person joins in. And so, you know, Anthony, with just two words, gets to be that person for Hermione, and I want to bless him for that. How about you, Vanessa? I'm going to bless Ginny for a moment that you pointed to, which is her killer umbrage impression. (laughs) But I just want to offer a blessing for someone who's, like, willing to make a joke to cut tension. Mm. I think that often being a class clown can be seen as disruptive or disrespectful. And I think that Fred and George take this to an extreme. But Ginny, I think we see the, like— beauty of what Fred and George are up to with their constant jokes. They're just at it all the time, and they're not always funny. Whereas Ginny, we don't see make jokes frequently, but when she does, they're very funny. And they come at, like, this great moment that's, like, really tense, and she breaks the tension with her humor. So I would like to offer a blessing for hilarious women everywhere. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we have started a Patreon, which we will soon be uploading exclusive content to. Leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, and we hope to see you at one of our live shows or for our weekend extravaganza in Orlando. Next week, we will be reading Chapter 17, Educational Decree Number 24, through the theme of Supremacy. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was brought to you by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. Thanks to Malloy Moore for this week's voicemail, to Julia Argy, Bridget Goggin, Danny Egan, and Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Bye!
All right, here we go. He really was a visionary that he knew that the electric slide was going to be a thing. Well, and then the Macarena in Antony and Cleopatra. I don't know uh, how. Incredible. He had a time turner. What a visionary. <laughs> Thriller. <laughs> Just at the end of Leah, as everyone's dead, they get up. (laughs) Hey, I'm Dylan Marin, and this is Conversations with People Who Hate Me, the show where I call up some of the folks who have said hateful or negative things about me on the internet. You can listen to Dylan's conversation wherever you love listening to podcasts. Just search Conversations with People Who Hate Me. And remember... There's a human on the other side of the screen.